Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Pope Francis is on his way to Ireland for the meeting of the world's families. The Vatican has announced that the Pope will meet with victims of abuse in Ireland and talk about the abuse scandal in at least one of his speeches. Yesterday, Pope Francis released an unprecedented letter to 1.2 billion Catholics in reaction to the revelations from Pennsylvania. The Pope expressed anguish over abandoning the abused, but offered no path to creating accountability mechanisms for bishops who covered up crimes. With me is Father James Martin. He's a Jesuit priest and editor-at-large of America, the Jesuit Review. Thanks for joining me again, James Martin. My pleasure. I wonder if you could maybe we could talk first about the letter that uh, the Pope issued. And some people are really expressing a lot of frustration with it. Um, there was an article in The Guardian that said, how dare the Pope ask for ordinary Catholics to atone for uh, child abuse and talked about how the church has failed miserably to include the very people who could have helped it be a better organization. Um, why should people have to atone for, for this problem? Uh, can you speak to the frustrations here? Yeah, I think it's understandable. Uh, I think the letter has positive aspects and negative aspects. Uh, the positive aspects are that he is addressing specifically the crisis uh, in Pennsylvania, which of course affects the whole church. And it's not a generic, uh, you know, comment on sex abuse, but he's responding to a particular situation. He says again, you know, that these are atrocities, and he pledges himself. Uh, to prevent them. I think that the frustration is that, you know, it didn't come with more uh, sort of specific action plans. You know, how are we going to hold the bishops accountable? And I think that, you know, I I myself had a little concern with the idea that he's calling the whole church to prayer and fasting. Now, you know, you look at that theologically, you know, we're all part of, we're all one. We're all part of the, the church. But any in, in any sort of implication that, you know, victims, God forbid, or their families have to pray or fast, I think is really anathema. And I think that's what people are responding to. But it's basically saying we all need to work together. So I, I, I wish my, my bigger concern was I wish it were a little heavier on action. You know, what's he going to do specifically to, uh, you know, hold bishops more accountable for their actions in the past? What are some of the kind of uh, reforms you'd like to see. In America, the Jesuit Review, there was a, uh, an editorial today with a list of suggestions. There's a lot of ideas out there. Yeah, it's hard to know where to start. I think the very first thing uh, is for the Church to institute uh, rules and guidelines that um, deal with bishops who have covered up these abuses. So in 2002, after everyone in Boston will remember, after the crisis in Boston, the U.S. bishops got together in Dallas and did this Dallas charter, which meant that any priest who was credibly accused of abuse was immediately removed from ministry, and that's worked very well. So there's no priest in active ministry who's, you know, been abusive. The question is what to do with bishops who covered these things up, and, you know, we saw in the case of Cardinal Law that, you know, people were very angry with the way that he was treated by the Vatican. They felt it was too soft, and I would agree. Uh, and so that's the missing link. Uh, that's the first thing. Well, yeah, hang on a second. But it, it, yeah, sure. I mean, are there still people like, I mean, Tom, Theodore McCarrick, who resigned last month, he was protected, you know, up until last month. Uh, Cardinal Pell in Australia is, has some kind of charges against him. He's the number three guy in the Vatican. These guys were protected, like, right now. Yeah, that's my point. I mean, in other words, priests were, who, with credible accusations, were removed immediately, Right. 
but bishops like you know Cardinal McCarrick and Cardinal Pell, <clears throat> excuse me, were not, uh, and so that's the problem. So, and also in addition to you know accusations of abuse, right? So, so ac- the, the accusations against Pell and McCarrick were about specific abuse, right? Actually abusing abusing people. Right. There's also the cover up. So, how do you deal with bishops who covered these things up and moved people around? That's the second part. You know, it's in, uh, the, one of the cases that is interesting uh, coming out of the Pennsylvania document is what's happening with Cardinal Wuerl. And he is uh, someone who's widely respected in the church, Pope Francis. He's pretty close to Pope Francis. And he seems to be someone who actually, you know, understands the issues at hand. Uh, six days before the Pennsylvania report was released, he was on uh, salt and light television, and he had these comments. When you hear of a case of abuse, when you hear of, they're talking about things that happened decades ago for the most part. Mm-hmm. So the charter worked. Now what we're realizing is we need to have something that would also be a mechanism for when a bishop isn't as faithful as he needs to be, even if the charge goes back 40, 50 years. And so what what I'm suggesting, what I have proposed to our conference of bishops, is we already have that statement of commitment we all did back in 2002. Let's put some practical measures to it to make it work. And that's Cardinal Wuerl talking uh, six days before the Pennsylvania report was released. In that report, um, it alleges that Cardinal Wuerl coddled flagged priests. In one case, he allowed an accused abuser to remain in ministry and in another presiding over a settlement uh, a settlement agreement that banned the victims from speaking. And it cites uh, a case of William O'Malley, who Wuerl gave a church job and loaned money to, even though the priest had uh, sexual trouble in the past and victims came forward alleging abuse in the years after Wuerl returned O'Malley to the ministry. So uh, O'Malley's re- uh, or Wuerl's record here has really come into question. Um, and yet, at the same time, he's somebody who tried to push out predators, and he went all the way to the Vatican to, to reinstate it, to, to fight reinstatement of a priest, and won. Um, how, how do you deal with somebody like uh, Cardinal Wuerl right now? That's a very good question. I'm not sure I have the answer for that. Um, you know, in the past, this is not, this is not an excuse, but, but this is true. In the past, in the 70s and 80s, um, you know, bishops were told by a lot of psychologists that this was a treatable illness, right? That that you could treat a man, you could send him away, get psychiatric care, and then they would be, you know, the bishops would be told, this guy is fine. And so they put him back into ministry. Now, I think that, to me, is understandable, right? What's not understandable is when the guy does it again, because then you say you don't have to be Sigmund Freud to figure out that this isn't working. But a lot of times the bishops were relying on advice from psychologists and then lawyers. So the lawyers would say, no, 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 you have to have a, a confidentiality agreement. And my sense is a lot of these people, like like uh, Cardinal Worrell, uh, who is a good person, uh, probably felt stuck between, you know, so-called expert advice. By the same token, uh, I think any time that this happened, you know, more than once, it should have been obvious to the people. It should have been obvious even to people that aren't experts that this person has no place in ministry. That's the part I struggle with. I struggle with uh, these people who are sort of shuffled around from from place to place. 
But a lot of times they were relying on terrible information back then. And now we know it is untreatable and it's a real illness. It's not it's not a moral problem that you can just say you're sorry about. So the answer is, I, I don't know. I don't know how to deal with these people who seem to have tried their best, but uh, failed, you know, in many cases miserably. Uh, Cardinal Wuerl has pulled out of his keynote address in Ireland that he was going to give. Uh, there's a high school that is considering taking his name off the building. There's a high school named after him, and they're re- considering taking that off. Should he consider resigning? Uh, we just saw in Chile uh, the whole class of bishops resign. Um, is that something that should just uh, come to mind immediately? Well, I think I haven't read all this stuff against Cardinal Worrell. I do think, though, that any bishop who is found to have covered things up, um, particularly in this sort of mendacious way that we're reading about, should resign. I mean, certainly any bishop who's still alive and who's still active and who's still a bishop. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I you know, I don't think mass resignations are such a bad idea, frankly. I know that's a little extreme, but I think what they did in Chile was important. And the reason is this. Uh, the bishops as a body uh, represent the church, right? They are sort of theologically, you know, they teach, govern, and sanctify. They are kind of, in fact, you know, technically, I think every church property is sort of uh, legally is owned by the bishop. That's, that's this idea of the bishop sort of being the church. And inasmuch as bishops represent the church, I think that they might think about these mass resignations as a really important signal or symbol to the faithful, that they take this seriously as a group. You know, and I'm not saying individually, but I think as a group it would be a very powerful symbol. And, and, but it's a symbol in, in the absence of a mechanism. We, we, we still, you still That's need right. the mechanism at the end of the day. That's right. That's right, because that really doesn't solve anything. Um, I, I think that the most important thing, again, is to have a mechanism with teeth, whereby any bishop who is found to have covered up um, these kinds of cases, you know, willingly, you know, and knowingly, you know, should be removed. And also, I think what's really important is this. That, that happened in Chile. But what's important is that when they are removed, you know, whoever they are, I'm not, you know, naming names. I haven't read the whole report. It should be said by the Vatican that this is why they are being removed. You see what I'm saying? It, it, it has to be said that this is the sure. reason the person is being removed. It can't be this person has retired or we're accepting his resignation. It should be said. You know, he's, he's being fired, basically. What about really opening up the, the mechanism to um, lay people or lay investigators who work with— I mean, you can't allow the bishops to keep policing themselves or have a, have a new, new committee within the institutions. There, there's like a— uh, there's an accountability thing that has to be more open. Right. That, would, that was going to be my second point, that I think, in a sense, well, I think that all of the um, uh, offices for child and youth protection, which are in every diocese now, should be run by a layperson, if they, not, if they are not already. Uh, and you're right. I, I think that the, the, the clergy has been shown to be incapable of policing itself. And why is that? It's because uh, you know, in many cases, you know, you, you depend on the bishop for everything, you know, your next job, uh, you know, in the next parish. And I think priests are probably loath to critique the bishops, and bishops are loath to critique one another. And I think you need sort of an outside auditor, basically, the same way you have accountants come in and audit from the outside or are not part of a corporation. I think you need outside auditors. So I absolutely, I think that that's essential. 
How do you get more women involved in the leadership roles in the church? Another good question. Now, I think we have to be very careful here, but I'm all for uh, more women in leadership roles. I've written about that. And, but I think we have to be very careful. One of the things that I, I don't like creeping into these discussions is that women are naturally more nurturing and men are not, or that women are naturally more concerned about sex abuse and men are not. So I think we have to be careful about these kind of stereotypes that women are all like this and men are all like that. Nonetheless, to have women there is important. Uh, and I think that, you know, there are certain things that I don't think you need to be ordained for. You know, even if we're sort of presenting the question of women's ordination, you do not need to be ordained to, to run certain organizations and, um, you know, committees in, in the diocese. You simply don't. So, for example, you know, it would make perfect sense to have a woman run the uh, Office of Child and Youth Protection in every diocese. That would make perfect sense. And certainly in the Vatican, what Pope Francis is trying to do is you know, bring more women into leadership roles. And, you know, I would go so far as to say that they should be cardinals. I mean, there are... there are. Uh, so I also think that... The other thing is I think that the lay people need to get more involved in the selection of bishops, which they used to do, you know, centuries ago. I also think that's another way of participating in leadership that is essential now. A little democracy. Is not so bad. <laughs> you know, I mean, in, in the sense that, that it is a democracy that, you know, elects the Pope. I mean, the, the cardinals vote. And so it is, it, you know, the, the Holy Spirit in, in the Catholic worldview works through the lay people as well. There's a great line in one of the great Vatican documents called Lumen Gentium, the dogmatic constitution on the church, that says that, uh, you know, lay people are sometimes, and the word they use is obliged, obliged or duty-bound to express their opinions on matters concerning the good of the church. And this is one of them. The question is, which your excellent questions are, you know, uh, pointing out, you know, how do they do that? And how do they do that in a system that essentially, uh, you know, gives them little real authority, you know, unless they're invited into roles of authority? That's the question. I had a friend who was uh, a monk who said... um you know, it's it. The Catholic Church is the only thing that hasn't reformed itself since the Holy Roman Empire. Uh, is is reforming itself just such a big swallow for this place institutionally? Well, first of all, I disagree with that. I mean, you had you know many reforms over the years, and certainly the Second Vatican Council was an immense reform in the way that we dealt with, for example, other religions. How do you do that? Um, you know. While a lot of it can come from the ground up, I think that much of it does have to have to come from the top down, and that's why so much really does depend on Francis. So, you know, the only person that can tell bishops what to do and tell cardinals what to do, and, you know, accept resignations and fire people, is Francis. And so we have to pray that that happens. I think uh, also I think the lay people need to, in whatever way they can, help with this reform. Uh, however they can, uh, if that's if that's writing, if that's agitating, if it's being a troublemaker, if it's volunteering for a parish council, if it's working in the chancery, any way they can. But I find it essential that lay people have to be involved in this reform. Uh, when we finish this interview, uh, you are going to get on a plane and, and travel to Ireland and uh, be there with the World Meeting of Families. Is what now the Pope and the Vatican, they, they put the World Meeting of Families in Ireland to talk about this issue uh, some. They've, they've got to be ready for this, right? Well, I hope so. I, I don't think that this was specifically designed to 
you know, talk about sex abuse, it's all family issues, but of course that comes up. The Pope is certainly going to address this. He's, they just announced this morning that he's meeting with uh, victims of abuse, uh, survivors. And so he has to address this. It would be, and and he'll, if he doesn't address it in his homilies or in his remarks, uh, he will be asked the questions on the um, plane ride home by the media. So, yeah, the, the world meaning of families is about much broader issues. But, of course, this is central now for people. And um, what, what do you think he – what message does he have for people in Ireland? Because it's, it seems like in Ireland it's a place that – a lot of pe- the, the trust in the Catholic Church is way down, and uh, the influence of it is way down. Uh, you know, I've had people in the show talking about this as you know, as them being not a factor, you know, in in uh, you know a lot of the referendums that have taken place there. Uh, what what um, what message can you give there? Well, remember, it's a pastoral visit, which means that he's going as a pastor, and the main message is God's love. Right, so the main message is about Jesus and the gospel. That's the that's the fundamental message. But I would imagine that he would have to address, you know, some of the some of these crimes and also some of the concerns that have driven people from the Irish Church. I mean, he, you know, he's a smart guy. He was Archbishop of a large city. Um, he's been in Rome for five years. He knows what's going on. He has people on the ground who can tell him. So he will, I'm sure, address some of these concerns. Uh, well, Father James Martin, thanks a lot for joining us again and talking about the issues um, being raised about the Catholic Church these days. You're welcome. Father James Martin is a Jesuit priest and editor-at-large of America Magazine, the Jesuit Review, and he'll join Pope Francis today as the pontiff heads to Ireland, uh, another place where the Catholic Church has struggled to handle decades of abuse. Later in the show, we'll talk about the new EPA regulations. The agency admits the new rules may cause the early deaths of 1,400 people. But right after the break, we're going to get an on-the-ground report from Kerala, southern India, where rains have caused devastating floods and mudslides. I'm Jerome McDonald. You've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. After a dozen days of torrential rains, the results in Kerala are devastating. 800,000 people living in camps, over 400 people dead, several billion dollars worth of damage. The good news is the waters are receding. Rescue efforts are 90 percent complete, but there are still dangers ahead. Let's take stock of what's happening in Kerala, India, with the BBC's Salman Ravi in Kerala. Thanks for joining us, Salman. Thank you. Can you explain some of the challenges right now? I imagine they are many, but I know that a lot of times there are waterborne diseases that crop up right now. I imagine authorities are mobilizing to fight disease right now. 
Yeah, I'll start with the snake bite incidents. And because uh, being a tropical climate and Kerala is known for the king cobra and uh, other poisonous snakes. So there have been uh, 50 at least cases where I am right now of snake bites and they have been admitted wow. to different hospitals across the district. So this is one big challenge. And another challenge is that uh, a crocodile entered a house after the water receded. So these are the challenges that have come. And uh, people, they were rescued after the hectic operations that were launched. And this was the biggest ever rescue mission launched in the history of India uh, to rescue hundreds and thousands of people who were stranded due to flash floods and heavy rains. So after the rescue operations, mostly the people, they were rescued. But the domestic animals, there were only few uh, who could have been rescued by local NGOs or even by the uh, National Disaster Relief Foundation people. But the uh, carcass of these animals uh, in the stagnant water, it can lead to uh, outbreak of epidemic. And Nifa recently, uh, Kerala faced Nifa virus threat also, and it, it had to deal with that situation. So now the uh, situation has been described by the Indian government as of severe intensity, uh, uh, catastrophic, you can say. Uh, uh, that toll in the last 12 days only is around 250 people uh, in different parts of the southern Indian state, which is known as God's own country. And just because it's uh, so beautiful, uh, it's a hilly area uh, with coconut trees and it's on the western side of India facing the Arabian Sea. So it's a very scenic and very beautiful state, small state, and that is why it's known as God's own country. And the people here, they were not prepared because in a century, they have never faced such a situation. And that is the reason that the people, administration, the government officials, they were caught of guards because they didn't know what to do, how to respond to such a situation, which has uh, had never come before. But still, the situation continues to be grim, despite uh, water levels receding and despite uh, rain stopping and sunshine finally coming uh, uh, this morning. So the areas which are still vulnerable include that uh, highest literacy rate, 10% literacy rate uh, district of India, Ernakulam. That is one of the most uh, worst affected areas where in Chenganur, uh, at least uh, a thousand people are still trapped who cannot be rescued. And in Trishur, where I am, there are around 500 people in a place called Pulu, which has converted into an island. And there is no other means to just approach them through uh, the river or through the water because of the heavy current. So the food has to be airdropped there. Uh, the Air Force uh, officials, they are airdropping. Uh, electricity has become a big challenge because uh, in the past few days, uh, the people here would be needing more electricians than more uh, supplies. And uh, another big task before them is 10,000 kilometer road, uh, the highways, they are completely destroyed, the bridges, the culverts. So these have to be rebuilt and it is going to take a while. It cannot be done soon. Yeah. And the rehabilitation of people, of course, uh, this is another big challenge because uh, the people who have lost their homes, they need to rebuild it. First of all, they need to disinfect the area because if they don't do it as soon as the water goes down, it's going to spread an epidemic. And uh, many people, they are still in the camps. They are fearing to return to their homes, just fearing that they might get ill or their children might fall sick. So this is one of another challenges that the administration is facing now. And 3,000 relief camps are full with people. They are being provided medical care there. 
But what happens when they come, return to their homes once the water goes? This is what the authorities are worried about. Salman, I wanted to ask you about the rescue operations, which seemed so um, incredible from where we sit. We heard about hundreds, thousands of fishermen who were, were very prevalent in Kerala doing rescue operations on their own. They were, they were risking their boats, their lives, helicopters, pulling people out of desperate situations. That really went on for a long time. Absolutely. And I could quote the chief minister of Kerala state, Pinarai Vijayan, who said that our army and our navy is a force of the fishermen that we have. And because the fishermen, they know how to swim. They know the topography. They know the language. They know the area. The rescue workers who have come from northern part of uh, India, they don't know the local language. So it's very easy for the fishermen to connect with people. They know the means, the roadways, uh, because there is a huge uh, line of backwaters, small rivers and rivulets. Uh, which connect to the sea. Uh, so the, these fishermen actually, and even the local people here, they played a very significant role through social media, through other means to reach out to people who were stranded. They went on their own. They provided food on their own. Uh, they rescued people, carried them on their backs uh, to rescue camps. So this was something incredible. And that is the reason why the chief minister said that our fishermen are our army and navy as well. What was the most amazing rescue you saw? The most amazing rescue was of a family which was trapped on a rooftop and uh, it was surrounded by water from all the directions and the current of uh, water was very high and the boats were unable to reach to that place. So the helicopter, the brigade led by an Indian Air Force wing commander, it went there in a, such a difficult situation because it's a hilly area and there are so many trees also over there. So that was very dangerous. Uh, it was just a matter of seconds that the helicopter would have blown off. But they managed to rescue that family from the rooftop and brought them to safety. And uh, finally, they were shifted to the rescue camp. I'm talking with the BBC's Salman Ravi in Kerala, India, and we're talking about the devastating floods there. There's 800,000 people living in camps, over 400 people dead. I wanted to ask a question about second-guessing of the flood management situation there in Kerala. It's a land of many rivers. There's many dams there. And people are pointing their finger at the dam management and thought that if uh, waters had been released a little previous to the heavy rains, they could have helped mitigate the situation. And people are really pointing their fingers at the dams. That is actually true because uh, uh, the experts here, they say that when the rainfall was unexpectedly high, so uh, the level of uh, water when it was rising in the dam, they should have gradually opened up the gates to release that water. That, that should have actually prevented this sudden flash floods and flooding of other low-lying areas. And even some of the dams, they broke because uh, they were blocked and they were not open on time. So this was actually uh, leading to a situation which had ultimately got out of hand of uh, the local authorities because once the gates are broken, you cannot stop water. Water will make its own way. So they should have done it that gradually. That was a big failure because Kerala has never faced such a situation, as I said, in the last one century. So people didn't know how to react to such a situation. They thought that it might be a matter of one or two days that it's, uh, they are facing heavy rains. But that turned out to be catastrophic. And finally, many dams, they actually broke down and the water gushed and wiping out everything that came in its way, including uh, landslides. Many uh, houses, they were reduced in debris. 
many people they were swept away animals domestic animals cattle everything was swept away because of the force the gush of water which came suddenly after breaking the dam uh, was actually very very impactful and catastrophic for the people I wonder if you could reflect a little bit on land use in Kerala. You mentioned it's very beautiful. They've got a very well-developed tourism industry, new hotels. There's power plants. There's new housing. There's mining. And I was reading something by an ecologist. He's interested in kind of restricting some of that because he doesn't think it's good for what's going on. And he said, unfortunately, our state governments are in collusion with vested interests and they don't want any environmental laws to be implemented. Our recommendations would have been accepted in any law-abiding society, but today we have a lawless society and extremely poor governance. Is development and land use a big issue there? See, it's a big issue throughout India, and particularly in Kerala, this has been an uh, issue for a while, uh, because most of the population in Kerala is dependent on remittances that come from Saudi Arabia or uh, from uh, Middle Eastern countries where most of the people, they are employed. So they have actually left farming, and they go to uh, Middle East to work as uh, in different other jobs, and then they get money from there, they send it back home. And when the money comes home, so they instead of uh, going for farming, they prefer to set up supermarkets or lease out the land to uh, private players or mining companies so that they can get money without going out and farming in the fields. So this is uh, actually one of the reasons uh, that uh, you won't find many fields or uh, many farmers here. The only community which is visible, which is really uh, working hard and they are uh, to their roots are the fishermen who go out into the sea, who go out into the river, and then they fish. But the farming is fast fading out. Uh, there is no interest in the younger generation to continue with the family tradition of farming. So the younger generation is moving to the IT industry or to the management uh, sector. And that is the reason that Kerala is not producing more farmers and it's not growing more crops. It's completely dependent on supplies from other neighboring states. Even for the food supplies like uh, food grains, rice, wheat and pulses, it's dependent on other states. So this is one of the reasons that the land management, uh, because when you don't have proper plantation or proper crops, because the major crops here used to be bamboo trees, coconut farming, spices. This is what Kerala was known for. But with these trees disappearing, the land has become very vulnerable, uh, very weak. So any flash flood can become catastrophic. This is what now the, uh, the people themselves have come to know and even the government. This is a lesson for them. What are things that people could do to help? Uh, it sounds like for a long time, Kerala is going to be in a pretty perilous situation. Absolutely. With so many people uh, stranded and so many people in the relief camps, hundreds and thousands of them, uh, when they return home, the homes are not there. Uh, it will take a while to build up. And many of them have taken loans to set up their businesses, like uh, a family which I had been yesterday, uh, which lost uh, most of his members uh, in the flash floods. So that family was completely dependent on an ice cream agency. The whole family was working for that agency. Now the whole house is wiped off and they have no place to stay even. They had taken a loan of uh, 100,000 uh, Indian rupees. Uh, and now they say that how are they going to repay that because the earning member of the family, he has actually injured himself. His right leg has been severely injured. So it will take a while for him to recover from his injuries and then get back to work and then repay the loan. 
but the government is thinking of uh, actually they announced in a meeting today uh, this morning they had a cabinet meeting and said that the loan the bank agencies and the banks even the cooperative banks and the private banks are not going to go after the persons who have taken loan to recover them till they are in a position to repay but still now we have reports that these bank agents have been visiting relief camps asking for the people to just give the interest to the bank so this is what is happening really on the ground Amazing. Uh, we'll keep our eye on what's happening in Kerala. And thanks for joining us, Salman Ravi, uh, in Kerala. Thank you so much. Coming up after the break, the Trump administration changes the Clean Power Plan into the Affordable Clean Energy Bill. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. President Trump is on his way to West Virginia to celebrate in coal country the new EPA plan that would replace the Obama administration's clean power plan. The president's new plan would allow an increase in carbon emissions and, according to the plan's own numbers, lead to 1,400 premature deaths annually. With me is Janet McCabe, a senior law fellow at the Environmental Law Policy Center. Janet was previously the EPA's acting assistant administrator for the Office of Air and Radiation, and she played a lead role in implementing the Clean Air Act standards, and that includes the Clean Power Plan. Thanks for joining us, Janet. Well, thanks for having me. It's great to be here. You know, one of the key features of President Trump's new plan seems to be this idea that um, the states are going to decide how much uh, how much emissions they want uh, out there. Um, what is what's the philosophy there? What is the idea, and is it a good one? Yeah, so that's a really good question. Um, for decades, ever since it was enacted, the Clean Air Act has set up this very effective partnership between the federal government and the state government to deal with air pollution in the country. It's been very successful. Um, and and typically, the way it works is that EPA is responsible for establishing the target, the health goal, um, the overall environmental um, pollution reduction goal. And then states have the flexibility to implement those plans in a way that makes most sense, especially when we're talking about um, existing facilities. Um, uh, but what's happening here, as, as it seems from uh, what folks have been able to see of the rule so far is that EPA is not really setting a target or an expectation. Um, they are giving uh, immense discretion to the states to sort of pick pick their own target. And we have to remember that CO2 is a, is a global pollutant. This is not a, a, a local pollutant. Um, and it, it 
it really is EPA's responsibility to set that expectation um, and then give states the flexibility um, uh, to get there in the best way they can. Well, if it's the if the EPA is not doing its job, are a bunch of people going to sue and say you're not doing your job right? Oh, for sure they will. Um, of course, we have a comment period and, and the rule will be finalized, but um, I have no doubt that there will be multiple legal challenges. Of course, there were challenges to the Clean Power Plan, and that litigation is sitting stalled in the in the D.C. Circuit. Um, so uh, it'll be interesting to see how, how these two pieces of litigation come together if they do. Uh, there's a, a lot of modeling that goes on to figure out um, an, a statistic like um, how many premature deaths there's going to be in, when you've got a plan like this. Um, it sounds like the EPA wants to do things differently now than it has in the past. Can you describe what's happening there? Yeah, so there are a number of things that this EPA is doing uh, to change the way EPA looks at the benefits of, of, of pollution reduction rules. Um, and it is a, a very complicated process that people have worked on for years and years to come up with ways to do it. So um, we know from science, from many studies, that air pollution does affect human health. Um, uh, it, it impacts range from uh, in exacerbating asthma all the way to premature death, uh, cardiac um, uh, events and, and that sort of thing. And um, some of those things are very hard to put a value on, um, but economists and others, public health um, experts, have tried to do that over the years. Um, in addition, this is further complicated by the fact that it, that it is challenging to, to put a number on the um, benefits to the United States and indeed to people around the world um, uh, as a result of climate change. Um, but we need to do the best we can as we move forward forward on policies um, that, uh, that uh, relate to this area because we do know that there are adverse impacts from climate change um, around the world and indeed in the United States and indeed in the Midwest happening right now. So we need to do our best job on that. So this administration has taken a number of steps, um, proposals at this point, um, that would reflect a very different way of looking at uh, how you quantify um, the, the public health benefits. Um, and it involves putting a lower number associated with climate change uh, benefits um, and also a lower number um, with uh, health effects related to more traditional pollutants like soot and smog. Um, so they end up with lower numbers. But the, the, as I understand it, the reason that this rule um, reflects an increase in premature deaths as compared to the Clean Power Plan, which um, uh, reflected that lives would be saved, is because this rule will not reduce traditional pollutants as much as the Clean Power Plan would have. Um, when you when you shift away from fossil energy with all of its pollution, CO2 and others, um, you get reductions in particulates, you get reductions in sulfur dioxide, mercury, and those sorts of pollutants. And, and those are in, um, immediate health benefits to people in those communities. And, um, and, and this proposal wouldn't have those reductions associated with it. So, so the health benefits are significantly less. I'm talking with Janet McCabe, Senior Fellow at the uh, 
Environmental Law Policy Center, and we're talking about the Trump administration's replacement of the Clean Power Plan, and uh, the Trump administration is calling um, the the plan that they have the Affordable Energy Plan. Um, I wanted to ask a question to, to kind of follow up on what you're saying about the particulates and how to um, police these uh, particulates. Um, the acting administrator of the Office of Air and Radiation, which you used to be, um, said that there would be collateral effects on traditional pollutants compared to what the Clean Power Plan might have achieved, but we said we have the abundant legal authority to deal with those other pollutants directly, and we have aggressive programs in place that directly target emission of those pollutants. What is he saying there? Do they have other instruments to get pollutants down that would hurt people? Well, there are other parts of the Clean Air Act that deal directly with those pollutants, um, the uh, different rules that apply to the power sector that control emissions of SOX and NOx and that sort of thing, and also um, the the fundamental program about establishing health standards, uh, the ozone and PM health standards that states have to meet. Um, I would point out, however, that one of the key programs that is designed to help control emissions of those traditional pollutants is what's known as the New Source Review Program. The New Source Review Program is a program that says if a facility wants to expand or build new in a way that will increase emissions of those pollutants, they need to go through a review process to make sure that they are minimizing those new emissions as much as possible. In this proposal they are proposing to exempt power plants from having to go through new source review when they are making changes that might be required by a state um, under its carbon plan. So um, at the very same moment that they're saying there are other programs to address these pollutants, they are proposing to weaken one of those very programs in this proposal. What do you think the bottom line will be for the coal industry in the United States? Are, do they get to um, rebound? Is this just a lifeline? Do you have thoughts about uh, what the Trump administration's goal is here? Well, I, I think that it, this proposal could be fairly read as another effort by the administration to prop up the coal industry. Um, we know that the coal industry um, is declining for reasons that go way beyond environmental regulations, um, primarily because it is no longer cost competitive um, with natural gas and increasingly with clean renewable energy, solar and wind, which is getting cheaper and cheaper. Um, so so not clear to me that this effort um, would 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 be enough or be meaningful in terms of affecting the, the longer-term viability of the coal industry. But it, it certainly does seem to be um, tr- moving in that direction, trying to do that. You know, we had in Chicago a long effort to close a couple of coal plants that were located right near populations. And uh, the, the companies involved, they just seem to... Um, to recognize that they were going to have to close them eventually, but they were just going to string it along for as long as they could and make some money. Is this some? Is this something similar, like on a national scale, that uh, the coal plants are? We're just going to hang on and uh, you know keep extending the life for these coal plants that are really dirty, even though uh, we should be closing them because nobody's telling us to. 
I, I think that that could be the result in some states, absolutely, depending on how states write their plans. And, you know, it's sort of analogous to if you keep a car a long time, um, at some point you have to do a big repair and you decide whether it's worth it. I've, you know, I've only got the two more years life on this car. Am I really going to replace the transmission? Um, and that's kind of the, the, the same calculus with these old coal plants. The, the coal fleet in this country is getting pretty elderly. And uh, the longer they can run them without having to put significant investment into them, the longer they will run them. And and this proposed rule seems to provide a pathway for states to uh, allow them to do that if, if that's the way they proceed. What do you make of the public debate on this? Um, I It seems like it comes down on partisan lines and, and it's almost like uh, keeping coal plants open. It's not um, – if it isn't, you know, health, good health benefit, if it's polluting, why, why, why do it? Why, why do you look at so many people who get out there and, uh, you know, are going to go to a rally in West Virginia? They're going to support this thing tonight. Uh, why? What's the? How do you understand people who um, want to do so much polluting? <laughs> Well, I, you know, I do think it's unfortunate how politicized this has come and how hard it is to have um, a, a, a really basic and factual conversation about these. And and to the extent that the coal industry um, is in decline and real people are suffering as a result, and I don't think anybody's questioning that, there are communities that were built around this industry. Um, we as a country um, can't neglect those shifts. And we need to be focusing on policies and investments that will help those communities transition um, to to other um, uh, types of in, uh, economic activity that can sustain those communities um, and provide good jobs t- to those folks. And I don't think that we as a country are doing that. Um, and, uh, of course, people feel threatened and, and anxious and scared. Um, and the the EPA reg- regulations have have been a very tidy um, focal point for people's anxiety and, and anger. Um, I, I, we, we, we tried to spend as much time as we could um, talking with people about the, the rule as we developed the Clean Power Plan and trying to meet the needs of as many people as possible. Um, and, and sometimes you can have those conversations um, out of the spotlight. Um, but uh, as you say, um, things are, are very politicized these days, so, so it's very challenging. The president gets out there and really makes some arguments that seem to defy logic. One of them is indestructible coal. He talks about it being a national security issue and that it's the you know the only energy source that in a military situation you could never destroy because it's coal. Um, how, how, what do you make of that? Well, I, I, I think that there's, there's a, a lot of views on – um, where this country should be going on energy, but I but I think the tide is is all moving in the direction of cleaner energy innovation. One of the things about the clean power plan that a lot of people found um, attractive and appropriate was the long term signal it sent to the industry about the need to continue to innovate. You know, we we just we simply have to get carbon emissions under control 
in this country and around the globe. And, um, and we can't do that by continuing to burn fossil fuels. Um, this is an incredible country. We're, uh, we're full of creative people who have managed to tackle problems like this before. You know, people said the acid rain problem couldn't be solved and uh, we're way on the road to solving that. The hole in the ozone layer, people said that will um, uh, we can't possibly fix that. We're on the road to solving that through um, innovation um, and new technologies um, that have provided business opportunities for American companies around the world. So um, I think we can do that here too. And in fact, the Defense Department has been one of the, uh, the, the loudest voices saying that climate change is a threat to, to U.S. security. Yeah. Now, you mentioned that um, the, the new um, proposed proposals by the Trump administration. There's, um, are, is there peop- things people can do about it? Is are there reviews of this still? Is there a, a, a talking period yet? Yes, there will be a comment period. They've proposed a 60-day comment period, which will start when this proposal actually gets published in the Federal Register, and that usually takes a couple of weeks. Um, my guess is that people will ask for that period to be made longer. Um, uh, we had a longer period for the clean power plan. There also will be at least one public hearing where people can show up um, and speak to their government about this. And I would encourage everybody who's interested in this, whatever side you're on, to take advantage of that opportunity to to weigh in with with EPA uh, with your views on um, on this proposal. Janet McCabe is a senior law fellow at the Environmental Law Policy Center. She was previously the EPA's acting assistant administration for the Office of Air and Radiation, and she played a lead role in implementing the Clean Air Act and the Clean Power Plan. Uh, Thanks a lot for joining us and talking about what happened today uh, with the administration and their new plan. Thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Tomorrow on Worldview, we're going to talk about vaccines. There's a growing anti-vaccination movement happening in Europe. There's been an interesting back and forth in the legal territory in Italy and a lot of confusion. We're going to talk with some public health experts and see if there are any trends uh, like this going on in the U.S. Hope you can join us tomorrow for Worldview. Worldview is produced by Steve Bynum and Julian Haida. Thanks to Viviana Garcia-Blanco and Shazmin Hussein for production assistance. Thanks to Shelley Steffens for engineering. I'm Jerome McDonald. You've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.